Today is the sixth day of Rohatsu Sashin. Um, it's an important and beautiful annual ceremony, and it's happening at this time, or, or roughly this time, um, all over the world. So uh, Zen practitioners are sitting many hours of zazen, and chanting and bowing. The activities of, of this gathering are connected in, in some way to the activities of um, other temples and other groups uh, all over the country and all over the world. Um, and that's, that's very moving to me, the way we make one enormous body of practice. Uh, and we know that's happening. We know that's happening. Um, but I do want to say that the Sashin can be a powerful, Sashin is a powerful experience, but it can be hard. Um, there are times that it's physically uncomfortable or painful. There's times that it's um, emotionally uncomfortable or painful. Um, I was thinking the other day when I was here that some of the worst experiences of my life and some of the best experiences of my life have been in Sashin. Um, sometimes the same Sashin. <laughs> And sometimes within about 45 minutes of each other, you know? So a lot can happen in seven days. And um, I guess I wanted to encourage anyone who's having difficulty of some kind to, um, to acknowledge that and, to, and to, to reach out. We don't have to um, suffer physically or emotionally uh, on our own. I've been helped a lot with difficulties in Sashin, and there's many, many, um, very experienced practitioners here who could who could help if something is hard. Uh, so please ask. So right after this talk, we will have a a ceremony. It's a ceremony of Buddha's enlightenment, and we will um, chant and we will 
circumambulate and flowers will rain down on us. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit today about how we might relate to that ceremony, to a ceremony of Buddha's enlightenment, but really more generally how we might relate to all the activities of Vahatsu Sushin, um, to Zazen and Kinhin, and Oriyoki in service, to the ceremony of Buddha's enlightenment. How do I relate to these activities? Um, in a way, the question is, what's the story I'm telling myself about what we're up to? Um, just actually, what are we up to? <laughs> and I'll give away the point at the beginning, or one of the points, which is I think there's different ways to think about it. There's different good ways to think about what we're doing. And that the way we think about it impacts in some ways what it's like. Um, so Rohatsu Seshin in general, maybe especially the ceremony we're about to do, is in some kind of relationship to Shakyamuni, Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha's awakening uh, under the Bodhi tree millennia ago. So in a way, that the question I'm asking is, what is the relationship between what we're doing today, what we're doing together now, and the enlightenment of Shakyamuni? So I think one way we might think about this, and I think this is an honorable way, this is a, a common ancient view, and I think it's a common contemporary view. It's, it's what is it? It's orthodox, you know, it's doctrinally sound. <laughs> um, you could think that the, the relationship is that we are honoring or we're commemorating where we're celebrating this wonderful thing that this person did. So someone did something in their life, and, and I think it's great, and I want to acknowledge it. Um, I think when a sports team wins a championship, you know, they, they go back home, and, um, and there's a parade. You know, it's like, yay. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, <laughs> when the men's uh, uh, in the men's World Cup, when Argentina won the World Cup, maybe some of you saw this footage. Um, the parade in Buenos Aires um, was so big that they actually had to helicopter the players out. <laughs> There's no way through, right? So um, we could think that the uh, Buddhist Enlightenment ceremony is a parade. You know, we'll be walking and throwing stuff. Uh, it's a parade we're throwing Shakyamuni Buddha because we're so impressed and so delighted uh, that he woke up, that he freed himself from greed, hate, and delusion. So I noticed a few things about that understanding. Um, one is that 
the awakening is located in another person's life on that understanding. And then I relate to it from my life, and maybe it serves as, as an inspiration or a model or a guide. Um, you know, a lot of things in the world work exactly like this. Um, so if, if you learn how to play the piano, you know, the ability to play the piano lives in your life. I, I might be inspired by that. I might, I might decide that I could play the piano and I might go study the piano. And um, I guess I might try to emulate the way that you're a piano player by the way that I'm a piano player. And so I might be very grateful to you for having demonstrated for me that it's possible to do this amazing thing called learn how to play the piano. Maybe I didn't know that before. You're the only piano player I've ever met. You know, this is really important. Um, and I guess I might, I might think like, especially if you're a really good piano player, maybe I'm not gonna be as good of a piano player as you, but I can still be delighted that in my way, I'm messing around on the piano. Or I could have an understanding that I could be just as good a piano player as you. Um, Again, so a lot of things, maybe actually most things in the world are like this. It's somebody does something in their life and then we relate to it from our life. Um, and this is an honorable, this is one view of what happened when Shakyamuni Buddha woke up. It's this wonderful thing that we can be inspired by or emulate in our way. Um, this person did this special thing and it's inspiring to me and um, um, in my own life or my community I'm going to try to do some version of that um, so as I said this is a, this is a view that you find uh, in the ancient world and um, it I think it's a fairly common contemporary view. I think if you went over to the bookstore and looked in the Buddhist section, I think you'd find texts that, that understand the, the Buddha and the Buddha's life in this way, a model, something to emulate, something to imitate or learn from. Um, and you know, occasionally in, in, in the Soto Zen school, you, you can find stuff where, where we talk about it in this way, but. You know, most often that, that's not the understanding that's expressed in our school. Um, often in our school, it seems that awakening is in some important way not like playing the piano. It, it, it's different, it is a different, uh, it's in a different category, you could say. Um, so the way we, tell the story of, of Shakyamuni's awakening. This is um, from the Denko Roku. This is um, Keizan Zenji. So the Soto Zen School, two great founders, um, Dogen Zenji and Keizan Zenji. And Keizan wrote um, a record of uh, stories about the ancestors. And it starts with a story about Shakyamuni. It's very short. Um, Two sentences. Many of you know the story very, very well. 
Shakyamuni Buddha realized enlightenment on seeing the morning star. He said, I and all beings together attain enlightenment. I and all beings together attain enlightenment. So I think this is actually really, really different than playing the piano. Um, it's not actually the case that if you learn how to play the piano, I learn how to play the piano. That, that would be a misunderstanding of how things work. It's just not true, right? Um, uh, yeah, again, I can relate to it. I can be inspired by it, but it's not. It lives in your life. It doesn't live in my life. So the, the teaching of our school is that awakening must not be like playing the piano. Um, it's something else. A little later in, in that same text, the Denko Loku, Kazan writes, just as when you lift up a net, all the holes are raised. When you lift up a net, all the holes of the net are raised too, right? In the same way, when Shakyamuni Buddha was enlightened, so too were all beings on earth enlightened. So by the nature of what a net is, when you lift it up, the holes come with it. Right? It's not possible to have a net that you can lift without lifting the holes, just by the, the logic of what a net is. And so by the logic of what awakening is, it's not possible for it to live in one person's life. Um, because awakening is precisely freedom from the delusion of separateness. If you're a net and you lift it up, the holes gotta come just by definition, right? By definition, freedom from separateness can't happen in a separate life. It's not coherent. So I, I want to notice, or for myself, maybe for you, I want to notice that that understanding begins to shift a little bit what I think we're doing in something like the Buddha's enlightenment ceremony. So when Shakyamuni Buddha was enlightened, so too were all beings on earth enlightened. I start to feel like maybe I'm in a slightly different relationship to Buddha's enlightenment and when I was honoring it and inspired by it and maybe hoping to emulate it in some way. Um, and it even raises this like little question of like maybe am I one of the beings that's included in, uh, in Buddha's enlightenment? But I wanna say, I think that's not totally clear yet, or we have to unpack that from a different angle, because there's, it, it is true that Buddha's awakening happened in the past. Buddha's awakening happened thousands of years ago. So we want to, we want to clarify a little bit as possible when Buddha woke up, everyone woke up. But then that happened a long time ago, a bunch of time has has happened since then. 
So maybe Buddha's awakening was sort of in the past. And again, a lot of things in life are like this. Things happen in the past. And maybe I become interested in them. I study them. I model myself after them. That happens all the time. And so the questioning is, is enlightenment, is Buddha's enlightenment like those things? Um, or is it, uh, is it different? Is it different in some way? So again, there's an honorable Buddhist position um, that asserts that awakening does happen in time. Uh, awakening happens in time. In a way, it's a really coherent Buddhist position. It's one that, that makes a lot of sense because it's saying that Buddha's awakening, like everything, is impermanent. It happens and it goes away. So it, it makes a lot of sense as a, as a position. There's a lot of versions of it. One really kind of influential version in, in the medieval world was this idea of the decline of the Dharma over time. Um, so Buddha is awakened and the teaching spreads and it's really wonderful for a while. It's really powerful. I thought of the teaching of the decline of the Dharma as kind of like, it's a, like a tea bag. You know, you got a tea bag, you put hot water on it, and you have your first, you know, drink a cup of tea, you know? And then you add more water later, and it's like, it's not as powerful, right? It's lost some of its, its juice, and maybe you can drink that. And then you try again, and it's like, it's really just water, you know? So that's an understanding of what happens to Buddha's awakening. It's really powerful for a while. There's the true Dharma, and then some centuries go by, and the tea's getting a little weak, you know? And then it's the sort of imitation Dharma, and then this final Dharma. Um, they're losing power because awakening is in time. You know? um, there's a, a slightly different version of this, which, which has to do with the future Buddha, Maitreya. And um, on one traditional understanding, you know, the future Buddha can't come. There can only be one Buddha, basically. Like, only one Buddha can fit in a world. <laughs> and so there's this, this great story that 5,000 years after Buddha's um, enlightenment, all of his relics, so, you know, there's like a finger bone somewhere, and like a fingernail, and a toe, and they all reassemble. And then they, um, they burst into flames, uh, and then Maitreya can come. But Maitreya can't come until Shakyamuni's gone, because awakening is in time. Um, so um, again, that's a really, that's a wonderful Buddhist position, and, and um, many people have thought that. And even occasionally in Soto Zen, we might talk about it in that way, but that it's not the usual understanding of our school. Um, uh, I want to say a little bit about her. Um, I'm going to read, uh, maybe I'll just read the story and then I'll tell you who did it. This is a different translation of um, the Denko Roku. So the first one I read was when Shakyamuni Buddha was 
uh, saw the, the, the star and was enlightened, and he said, I, together with all beings, realize um, enlightenment. This is a different version. When Shakyamuni Buddha saw, sees, and will see the morning star, he said, says, and will say, I was, am, and will be enlightened simultaneously with all beings. Um, so this is from a really nutty, wonderful translation of the Denko Roku by G.U. Kennett. Um, Kennett Roshi is this really, really interesting and powerful um, figure in American Zen. You know, she's, she's roughly a contemporary of age of Maizumi Roshi's. Um, and she's really important because she's the first Western woman who was um, granted uh, authority authorization by the Soto School in Japan. So, you know, just this history of the interplay between Japan and the West, right at the same time that these really well-known Japanese men were coming this way. Um, so Suzuki Roshi lands in 1959. Uh, Peggy Kennett, this British woman, was going that way. And she gets to Japan in 1961 um, and trains actually at Sojiji, which is where Suzuki Roshi trained, uh, where Maizumi Roshi trained, um, and did really rigorous slash brutal training in, in Japan and then came to the United States and um, taught here for, for many years. But in her translation of the Denko Roku, I think she wants to lift up this point, this understanding, this different understanding of awakening in time, which is that awakening isn't like other things that exist in time, that awakening is somehow freedom from the distinctions we make, like self and other, or like present and past and future. That awakening overflows separation from each other and overflows separation in time. It can't be bound by time because it can't be bound by the, by the nature of being boundless. Dogen Zenji wrote, um, when all Buddhas of the past, present, and future arouse the thought of enlightenment, they never exclude our body and mind. So the Buddhas of the past don't exclude my body and mind now. As I was thinking of this Kenaroshi translation and, and I knew I wanted to I wanted to mention it in this talk and that was before I had seen the echo for the Buddhism enlightenment ceremony that we're about to do and so I won't give it away but listen for was am and will be because that is precisely the understanding of this temple because that is what we are uh, Ryushin will assert that uh, in the dedication of merit uh, after this ceremony. 
So I just want to feel how profoundly this changes my understanding of the ceremony. So I'm not exactly commemorating something that happened in someone else's life or honoring it or remembering it. And I'm not exactly relating to something that happened at some other time. Um, somehow, mysteriously, it's our awakening. And it's our awakening now. And for me, at least, that profoundly changes what I think I'm doing. So now I'm not, I'm not honoring, I'm not remembering, I'm not celebrating. You could say um, I'm participating in, or I'm expressing, or I'm enacting, or I'm embodying. You could say that I'm playing in the field of enlightenment. And in the same way that it changes what I think we're doing in Buddha's enlightenment ceremony, I think it changes what I think we're doing in all our ceremonies. Um, Zazen is a ceremony of awakening. Eating orioki is a ceremony of awakening. It's an expression of our awakening now. Even the basic, sometimes we don't even think of them as practices, but they are the, the ordinary practices of sangha life, of trying to understand each other, trying to be patient with each other, trying to speak kindly. Um, the vital practice of trying to learn how to get along is actually a ceremony of awakening. Um, it is expressing our vast freedom together. I should probably stop. I want to go just, if I can, I want to say one more thing. I want to go just a tiny bit farther. Um, so I, I'm talking about ways of understanding what we do. Um, understanding awakening is something that we honor or something that we express. Um, but I want to notice that, that what we think we're doing also isn't static. Our, our, our idea of what we do ch changes. And in, 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 in a day of sashin, you can really feel this. What I think orioki means at breakfast isn't what I think orioki means at lunch. It, my, my thinking about what we're doing doesn't stay still. So although it seems to me that what we think we're doing has a tremendous impact and we want to notice and appreciate what we think we're doing. Um, 
I think it's also true that whatever we think we're doing, it doesn't exhaust the power of what we're actually doing. And that there is a way in which what we're actually doing can't be grasped by how we think about it or talk about it, no matter how beautifully or accurately we think about it or talk about it. Um, what we're actually doing in our practice is always more mysterious than anything we can know about what we're doing. Dogen Zenji wrote, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. So it's not that what we think we're doing doesn't matter. It matters a lot. And it really changes what it's like to do things. But it's that... Um, we can have faith that what we're doing, what we're really doing, is always, always, always beyond any way of thinking about it that we might have. And um, I think I should stop there and let other people talk about it. Yeah, Gary. Hi. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Is that okay? Yeah. If, if time is a straight line, Is awakening a circle? Did everyone online hear the question? Yeah. I actually didn't hear it. Could you repeat it again? I would say if time is a straight line, if time is a straight line, is awakening a circle around time? Mm -hmm. I think it's actually even more. It's like if time can be thought of as a circle or a line, awakening is the, the paper that that's on. Like what's the field it's all happening in is awakening. Like Tuesday morning, did anybody notice Tuesday morning how foggy it was? Yeah. Yeah, Mary. That, that last quote of Dogen about knowing and not knowing, it being our way being not knowing or knowing, would it, would it be equally valid to say that our way is knowing and not knowing? Did everyone hear that, that question? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's being, it's noticing and appreciating that sometimes we know, and then sometimes we know in a different way, and then sometimes we don't know, and that that's all happening. And then our way is the big open space in which all of that is 
happening together. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark, you know, we don't uh, talk about Buddha watching over us like Jesus Christ watches over us. Mm-hmm. But in the Heart Sutra, we do tell a story about Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, mm-hmm. who sees and meets human suffering, mm-hmm. while herself realizing freedom from human suffering. Mm-hmm. So this is another way of telling the story of how his enlightenment, her enlightenment, is not separate. Hours. That's beautiful. Thank you, Mark. Hey, David. Ross here. Uh, would will we give? Will we offer a birthday party mm-hmm. to our child mm-hmm. or to a friend, a contemporary? We celebrate their life and the birth. So I can understand and feel we're celebrating their birth yeah. and this person in front of me and someday when they die, mm-hmm. a memorial service. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time understanding the, the continuous time, past, present, future, with Shakyamuni Buddha's enlightenment. We're having a ceremony commemorating the enlightenment from millennia ago. But can you see a little bit about how I might be able to feel the intimacy of that now as I do with, say, a friend at a birthday party. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, even a birthday party, you know, in some ways it does. It overflows the past, right? Because we're not really celebrating the birth. We're celebrating the, the present with the person. And I think I just... I remember reading this G.U. Kennett translation of Adenko Roku. I remember the first time I read it years ago. I mean, it really... It really impacted me. I'll read it again. When Shakyamuni Buddha saw, sees, and will see the morning star, he said, says, and will say, I was, am, and will be, enlightened simultaneously with all beings. So it's, it overflows the way I think about things, which is this happens and then this happens. It, it's something else. Does that make sense? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, um, that's exactly your question. I would like to pass it along to another person. We'll take a walk. Thank you, Ross. Yeah. yeah. Let's do one more and then we'll. We'll do two more and then we'll stop. Yeah, we'll do them both. Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I really liked what you um, presented that we're enacting and participating mm-hmm. um, Shakyamuni's awakening. Um, yeah, that makes total sense to me. But I also, the first way you described it, I thought of things that way too. You know, um, just within my lifetime, um, Suzuki Roshi came here. Uh, I never met him, unfortunately. And I feel he had this wonderful teaching that inspired so many people. And then he passed that down to our teacher for, I don't know, eight years or something before he died. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the exact number. But 
Suzuki Roshi had that training since he was like eight years old, I think. You know, so I do think that things have gotten weaker and weaker, like the tea. And um, then, and then our abbot passed it down to many people in our sangha, and I feel it's weaker. So I have to be honest. That's my experience. So um, I've been reaching out a little to Tibetan lamas mm. who have the same 30 years of teaching. Mm. I do think things get weaker. Mm. So I'm, I'm sorry. And I know um, in our own experience, we can bring it to life, which is what you were saying. Mm. We can uh, embody it ourselves. So that's the beautiful part that you presented. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for your talk. Thanks, Rich. Mm -hmm. I've always had trouble with this idea of the Buddha sort of simultaneously awakening with all beings. Mm -hmm. For my own comfort, I sort of put that aside as hyperbole, just 100,000 million kalpas, like it goes in that same category. Um, and, and so I'm just wondering, I don't feel very, I don't feel like that sort of this reflection seems very dim to me. And I guess maybe I could say like, what what's in it for me, right? Like what, what is this, what is this? That's such a good question. That's such a big question, you know, but I think, um, I, I think part of it is I, um, I don't think awakening is a feeling. So it's possible to feel really clear and, and steady, or it's possible to feel really foggy and shaky. And I, I don't think um, awakening is something else. It's the reality in which those things happen. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would maybe start to say. It's a great question. Yeah. yeah. It's Dogen's question, actually. So it's an honorable, <laughs> it's an honorable problem in our school. Um, we should uh, we should go through a parade um, for ourselves and Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, thank you all so much. It's such a joy um, to get to practice together in this way.